Um, today we will be hearing from Dr. Reiner uh, Ziegelman about his new book, In Defense of Capitalism, Debunking the Myths. Um, Dr. Ziegelman is a leading intellectual advocate for capitalism, and we are truly honored that he has come all the way from Germany to be here with us today. Um, he is a historian, sociologist, and multiple best-selling author of 26 books, including Hitler's National Socialism and The Power of Capitalism. His books have been translated into numerous languages all around the world. In recent years, he has written articles and been the subject of interviews in leading media such as Forbes, Newsweek, The Daily Telegraph, The Times, Le Monde, Corriere della Sera, um, Frankfurter um, Allgemeine Zeitung, and Neue Zürcher Zeitung. I'm sorry for my pronunciation. And numerous media in Latin America and Asia. His latest book, In Defense of Capitalism, is to be published in 30 languages. Uh, welcome, Dr. Siegelman. Yes, thank you for inviting me. So, thank you for inviting me first. Uh, very stressful to come here because I planned to come yesterday and then first the flight was one hour too late, two, three, five hours, then I thought it was cancelled. Then they said, no, you can't go, we, we will go now. And I was sitting in the sitting in the plane and they and the announcement for start and then they thought no. Everyone has to go out, can't fly today, and so I had to sleep there in Frankfurt and uh, was one day delay and today it was two hours delay and then one and a half, half hour and passport, so in the end I'm happy that I'm only 20 minutes too late here. It could be much more, so thank you for being here. Yes, it's about my new book, In Defense of Capitalism, and you know, I'm uh, as you mentioned, this book is published in 30 languages, and I promised to go to all these countries. So last year I've been in 17 countries, this year I've been in 30 countries to speak about this topic. And I have a lot of interviews with TV all over the world, and sometimes I have only like some seconds time to explain why I have this t-shirt, not today, but I have one, I love capitalism. And when I have only 15 seconds, I tell people it's very easy. Because before capitalism, 90% of worldwide population lived in extreme poverty. And today it's less than 10%. I think this is a great story. And what's more important happened, this reduction happened over the last uh, decades, as you see here with these numbers. And Poverty meant something totally different 200 years ago than it means today. Even in countries like France and uh, England, that were the richest countries at this time, 
20% of the population were not even able to, to work because they were too weak. This is what poverty meant at this time, something different than it means today. And if we hear the word famine, or if we speak about hunger in the world, most of you will think about Africa, but this is not true. In the 20th century, 80% of the victims died in socialist Soviet Union and so socialist China. One example, there was this biggest socialist experiment in history at the end of the 50s. It was Mao's so-called Great Leap Forward, and 45 million people died. And when I have my lectures, whether it's in Asia, in Latin America, in Europe, or here in the United States, and whether I speak to like 20 people or 200 or 2,000, I ask everyone who have heard about this biggest socialist experiment in history, this Mao's crazy forward with 45 million people who died, who has heard about this at school. Maybe you raise your hand who have heard about it at school. Well, there are some that's uh, good, good to hear because most of, wherever I speak, most cases, there are only very few hands up that most of the people haven't heard about this in school. Of course, another argument against capitalism is inequality, the so-called gap between the rich and the poor. And let's come back to, to China. Of course, inequality is today bigger than it was before, because you know, when here, even in the beginning of the 80s, 88% of people in China lived in extreme poverty. 88% today is less than 1%. Why? Because they introduced private property, pro-market reforms by Deng Xiaoping. At the same time, the number of billionaires increased. At Mao's time, there was not a single billionaire. Today, there are as many billionaires China as in the United States. I think in Beijing you have more billionaires than in uh, New York City today. And you see, why is this so important? Of course, inequality is bigger than it was before, but I found no one in China, I brought this several times, who told me, oh, okay, let's go back to Mao's time because you were more equal at this time. I think inequality is not a problem. Poverty is a problem. These are two very different questions, inequality or poverty. I think we should care about poverty. And this is not the only example. I, I wrote now my next book. It's about Poland and Vietnam. And Poland was one of the poorest countries in Europe in socialist times. Today, it's. Uh, uh, Europe's growth champion since 25 years. Amazing story. My next film is, uh, will be about Poland. You saw the film now about East West Germany. The next film will be about Poland and uh, Vietnam. And of course, inequality is higher than it was. But who cares about inequality if almost everyone is better off than it was today? Of course, some people care about inequality. These are envious people. For them, it's more important whether someone is richer than they are than the question of poverty. And it's not here only in China. You see, it's all over the world. The number of 
billionaires increased in the last decades. The number of people living in poverty decreased. It was, you received more than 30%, and now it's something like, today it's something like 9%. And at the same time, the number of billionaires increased from 500 to 2,000 to 2,700 today. Why is important this trend? Because all socialists, all anti-capitalists, they they believe in or, or, or what is typical for them is what I call zero-sum belief. So they think that rich people become only rich because they take it away from the poor. This is the core belief of all anti-capitalists, the zero-sum belief. And you see, it's, it's totally nonsense because if it would be true, why is that, how is it possible that at the same time the number of people living in poverty decreases and the number of billionaires increases if the rich take it away from the poor? You see, it's not logical. It's, uh, it's, it's crazy, this zero-sum and another, another argument is climate change and environmental destruction. Especially young people are interested in this, and I don't want to discuss here. I know some people, they don't believe that there is anything like climate change. I, let's assume that there is a big problem like climate change, and of course there are environmental problems. But you see here that in economically free countries, the environmental standards are better than in uh, repressed countries. I compared two indices here. The one is the index of economic freedom. It's uh, created by the Heritage Foundation. You can find it free on the internet. It's something like 500 pages. It's a ranking of all countries all over the world, how economically free are these countries. The top you see countries like Switzerland or Singapore, Ireland, New Zealand, and at the bottom you see like North Korea, Cuba, or Venezuela. And by the way, the bad news for the United States, the last ranking was the worst ranking ever since they started with their index. They started in 1995, and last year was the worst ranking for the United States. The United States is now only number 25, what means there are 16 European countries that are more economically free than the United States. And this doesn't mean that Europe is economically free, quite on the contrary. We go more and more in the direction to a planned economy in Europe. But if the United States is even worse than 16 European countries, I think that should give us some food of thought what to change. But I want to speak about the environment, and there's another index, this is the Environmental Performance Index from Yale University. And if you compare both the Environmental Performance Index and the Index of Economic Freedom, you see that the Environmental Performance Index score is much higher in economically free countries, you can call it also the capitalism scale, than in uh, countries that are unfree or even repressed countries. And you saw it in my film about East and West Germany. I had there some parts about environmental problems. Their annual 
per capita CO2 emissions were three times higher in East Germany than they were in West Germany. And not only this, we see here other airborne pollutants, sulfur dioxide, 10 times higher. And so you see environmental standards that deposit in all socialist countries in the Soviet Union is rather the, wor the worst uh, environmental problems everywhere in the world. And I can't understand how people tell us today, let's solve problems, climate change or environmental destruction by introducing a planned economy. Because planned economy didn't work. The planned economy never solved any problem in the last 200 years. Why should it be the first time that they can solve problems where they never solved problems but only created a lot of problems? It's not logical. But then I hear always one argument that sounds very logical at first glance. The resources of our planet are limited, and so unlimited growth is not possible. I hear it very often. It sounds very logical, but it's wrong because, you see, growth doesn't mean always that we need more resources. Here we have the iPhone. It's not complete. Someone counted there are 35 different devices, like camera, telephone, and today you have it all in this one device, in this, this iPhone. And you need not four or five microphones, but only one. You don't need more resources, but less resources. And this is not the only example. When I was young, I was very proud. I had a large collection of this L, how do you call it, LPs. This, this, uh, young people usually, they don't know today. They know only the CDs. Later it came the CDs, but uh, for example, my, my girlfriend that was much younger than me, she laughs at me, why do you buy CDs? I don't know what else to buy CD. They take it from, I think, from the internet and so on. So with, without any, or with, with less resources, and with books, it's the same story. I've, I've, I haven't counted them, maybe six or ten thousand books at home. But my father, in spite of the fact that he's now 94 years old, is more up-to-date than me. He, he doesn't read any books anymore. He has this e-book or Kindle reader, so he, he needs less resources. These are a lot of examples. It's, it's not true that it was true, but it's not true any, any longer that uh, you need more resources always for economic growth. This is another very popular argument, capitalism. It's dominated by the rich. They stand the political agenda. Of course, I, I didn't take the example of Germany because Germany would be very ridiculous if one would say rich people rule. We have here the, the, the politics would be completely different in our country if rich people rule. But if it is true for a country, then everyone tells me then it's the United States because everyone knows to run for president. We need a lot of money, and this is true on the one hand. On the other hand, it's not so easy that, that um, more money is a guarantee or means that you will be president. Otherwise, uh, Hillary Clinton would be have been president of the United States, not Donald Trump, because Donald Trump erased 600 uh, billion. This is true, but she raised 1.2 billion, twice as much as. as uh, Trump, and you see, as of September 2016, not a single Fortune 100 CEO 
had about it uh, to Trump's campaign. So it was not their favorite candidate from the rich people in the United States. It was Hillary. Joe Biden wouldn't, wouldn't have been president of the United States today. It would be here, this guy, Michael Gruber, because at this time, when he wanted to run for president, he was the eighth richest man in the world with a net worth of 62 billion, and he spent one billion of his net worth in only three months, but without any results. So it's not so easy. You are rich, and then you get political power. There are much more things that are important. And here I quote uh, it's this political scientist Larry M. Bartos. He's it's different than me, it's more left-leaning and criticizes uh, the political system in the United States. But even he, he who um, made a very thoroughly research about 16 elections, and I added uh, one more, came to the result there were only just two out of 17 elections over the past 64 years in which unequal campaign spending was a decisive factor in an election. This is not my opinion, this is from someone, political scientist, who much more left-leaning, Larry M. Bartos, if you read it in this book. And you find, by the way, of course, all these arguments and much, much more in my book. And there's one paper, scientific paper, that is quoted in every uh, book or in every paper about this question, uh, about the uh, that, that rich people rule in capitalism, and it's based on a survey in 2012 where they uh, asked rich people what, what, are, what is their priority. And the good thing is now we have 10 years later, you see, their first priority for rich people in the survey was budget deficits. But if it would be, you know, no one fulfilled our president what they wanted. It was not Obama, it was not Trump, it was not Joe Biden, because it's higher than ever. And the last priority was climate change, which is now priority number one for Joe Biden. You see, it's, it's a good thing that it's now 10 years later, and you can say, yes, maybe they wish this, but this is not what politicians did. It's completely different. And then the next argument, monopolies. I hear it very often, yes, Capitalism leads to monopolies. And my answer is yes, capitalism leads to monopolies, but capitalism, much more important, destroys monopolies. Here you have the headline from this British newspaper in 2006 um, Will MySpace ever lose its monopoly? If I have this lecture with young people, they don't know MySpace. I've heard about it. What's that? Yes, it was something like Facebook. Will they ever lose? So these monopolies, they look very powerful when they are the height of their power, like today Google or Amazon. They look very powerful, but they are not. You're not exempt. This is Forbes one year later, 27. Uh, who will ever catch the cell phone key? No care. I don't know. Who has no care cell phone? I think no one. Who can ever catch yourself? Or this was kind of monopoly. Or here, another example, Xerox. I think, isn't it today, do you use this today like, how do you pronounce it, Xerox? So, 
Xerox, yes, do you say today sometimes? That's true, because it was, they invited and they had a monopoly, 95% market share. And this was another example of who destroyed it? The government? No, not the government. It was capitalist competition. Today it's less than 2% market share. Or here, Kodak, you remember this, the older ones, remember. 90% US film market, 85% US camera market. Then competition, capitalism, yes, capitalism leads to monopolies, but capitalism destroys monopolies. So here are some texts from a survey. I, what I did, I commissioned a poll, biggest poll ever in the world, about the image of capitalism. By the way, it was very expensive. I've commissioned it for 34 countries. For every country, I had to pay something like $14,000. So it's a lot of, lot of money, very expensive, but I think it was worth doing it. Before there were some polls, only with one question, for example, do you like capitalism or do you prefer capitalism or socialism? I think this makes no sense because even the word capitalism has for a lot of people negative connotations like dirty word. I wanted to find out how much has it to do with the word and how much what the word stands for. And so first we asked people some questions without using the word capitalism. We confronted them with statements like, for example, here. I think private business alone should decide what products to manufacture and what prices to charge for them. The state should not be involved in that. Someone who uh, supports this statement is, of course, pro-capitalism. Someone who supports statements like this, for example, we need a lot more state intervention in the economy since the market failed time, and again, is anti-free market. And then we calculated the average percentage of pro-free market and anti-free market, and then we came out to a, a pro and anti-capitalism coefficient. And you see here, this is the result for these 34 countries. Poland is number one, attitudes toward economic freedom, followed by United States, but United States, you have a huge, huge difference between older people Older than 60, younger people. Older people are very much pro-market. Younger people are neutral or less or, or with slightly negative toward free market. And you see the other countries, uh, but I, I come later back. This, this was without using the word capitalism, without using the word. And then we had some other questions. For example, this association test. We asked people, what do you think if you hear the word capitalism? Do you think about wide range of good or greed or innovation or corruption maybe? And again, we, we uh, took the average percentage from positive and negative statements and to come out at a coefficient, a pro anti capitalist coefficient. Then we had 18 more statements, positive and negative statements. All the topics I deal in my book, I spoke about some of these topics. So these were positive statements, for example, means economic freedom, 
or means that consumers determine what is offered, not the state, but also negative uh, statements is determined by the rich. We have to promote selfishness, greed, monopolies, inequality, climate change, and environmental destruction. And these were all in all 34 different statements. And then we calculated the pro and anti-capitalism coefficient. This is where we use the word, whether we use it or not, all in all. And so you see, again, Poland is number one, followed by the United States. And then there is South Korea. No, South Korea was one of the poorest countries in the 60s. Poorer than African countries today. I've been there in Seoul, and I will go there again in May. It's amazing to, uh, today what you see there. Japan, of course. Maybe some people wonder about Nigeria, but people in Nigeria are smarter than people in Germany, for example. They know that capitalism is not to blame for hunger and poverty. If you ask, is capitalism to blame for hunger and poverty? A lot of people in Germany say, yes, it is. In Nigeria, not. They are smarter. They know there are other problems. Like you, you got Uganda, they, they, they know they are smarter. And Czech Republic, of course, they know they have the socialism like in Poland. They are pro-capitalism. And, and maybe you wonder about Vietnam. I've been there several times in Vietnam. And they call themselves socialists with the so-called Communist Party. But I can guarantee you one thing. It's harder to find Marxists in Vietnam than in the United States or Europe. It's harder to find Marxists. Um, I was invited to four different universities in Vietnam, and for example, they invited me to a workshop uh, how to improve the image of rich people. Can you imagine a workshop in the United States? University, social science, how to improve the image of rich people? I, I don't think so, I don't believe it. Not in the United States, but, but in Vietnam they were interested. They read my books and they are translated there. So they call themselves socialists. And it's also, it's an amazing development. Uh, in 1990, a lot of people don't know, Vietnam was the poorest country in the world, poorer than all African countries. Extremely poor country. And then they started, there were very smart people there in Vietnam. They started with the so-called Doi Moi reforms in 1986. And today, if you look at this index of economic freedom, the, the, the two countries, that increased more, mostly in economic freedom in the last 25 years. It's Poland and Vietnam, these, these both countries. And it's amazing what you see there. So, and even if you ask them about capitalism, they, it has more positive connotation for them. And you see here, countries like France, they hate capitalism, you know. Uh, uh, now they're the countries in it's at the edge of revolution. Maybe you have to see it in the, in the TV. Only because they want to increase retirement age from 62 to 64 four years. And they got crazy and destroyed everything. They hate really capitalism in France. By the way, I told you my books are translated into so many countries, uh, almost everywhere in the world. But none of my books, I wrote 27 books, is translated in in France, so they hate capitalists, so they, they don't want to read books like, like this. So this is uh, France. And here you see the impact 
if we use the word capitalism, I think it's not a surprise. In most countries, the support for capitalism is bigger if we don't use the word. There are some countries where it's the other way around, but in most countries, uh, capitalism has this negative connotation. But this is not the important message. This is what I expected, and I think every one of you would expect. You, uh, you would need research uh, to, to confirm that capitalism is sort of as negative connotation for Muslims. But much more important was the other was the other craft here. This craft, because this is the craft where we didn't use the word capitalism. And if you see here, we, we have only seven pro-capitalist countries. By the way, Sweden. Some people are surprised about Sweden because. Crazy people like Bernie Sanders here tell people Sweden is a socialist country. He, he knows nothing about history. It, is, it was true, but it's 50 years ago. It's, uh, in the last 50 years, a lot of things happened. They saw in Sweden that socialism is a crazy idea. They abolished this. They have high income taxes, this is true, but they have zero wealth tax, they have zero inheritance tax, they have zero, uh, they have zero gift tax, and even I, I read the new book from Bernie Sanders, uh, it's okay to be angry about uh, capitalism. And he has one chapter in his book that there should be zero billionaires in the United States. Zero billionaires. So this is what he says. But in which countries you have zero billionaires? In, in Cuba, in North Korea, or two African countries. And when I speak about Sweden, there, there are 60% more billionaires as in the United States, of course, just the population. There are, there are only 10 million people, but 60% more in Sweden. So uh, I think the uh, United States should be proud to have so much billionaires, smart entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs. Maybe you wonder about Argentina. And uh, so Sweden is easy. I was very often there. They, they know, they have seen it. What's, it, it was so crazy in the 70s. There, there was this, uh, I don't know who knows her, Astrid Lindt, she's the author of uh, books for children. And, uh, she was more left-leaning, but then, then she calculated her tax rate, what she had to pay, and she wrote a, a whole page in a newspaper, like tax tale. Believe it or not, it was 102% tax rate. And the finance minister said, no, she's wrong. It's, it's, it's wrong. But in the end, even the prime minister said to admit, yes, it was correct. It was 102%. It's, it's crazy. And I think we know this furniture, IKEA. Do you know what here is? The founder, Kamprad, he was the richest man in Europe. And he left Sweden because this. Then he went to Denmark. It was better. And for the rest of his life, he lived at the richest man in Switzerland. Uh, that, uh, they and maybe you're surprised about Argentina there, why people in Argentina are pro-capitalist. Because they know how bad socialism is. They start to understand it. Maybe some of you don't know, Argentina was one of the richest countries in the world 100 years ago. Only to compare with the United States this time 100 years ago. Very, very rich country. And even there was a saying like, rich as Argentina. And, and then they started with this crazy Peron, socialist politics, 
And since 100 years, it goes down, 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 down. Their inflation rate, they have double-digit inflation rates every year since 1945. There were only 10 years in the 90s. It was exceptional. Every, can you imagine? If you grow up there, if you have now 50, 60, 70 years, you had only this 10 years without double-digit inflation rates. It's the only thing they know. And, and they expected to get everything from the state. This is their attitude. The state is responsible. We should, we should give it, get it for free from the government. But now there's huge change. I was there. They have libertarian liberal politicians. Johnny Millet will run for president. He's very, very popular there. But he's not the only one there. A lot of libertarian liberal politics. I don't mean liberal in the sense like United States, but classic liberal, pro-market, <coughs> pro-capitalism. And young people start to understand. I had a lecture there in some cities in Argentina, and it was Sometimes you have to explain it to them in an easy way. There, there was, I remember there was, I had one lecture there, and there was one young man sitting in the first row that were used to, but he was like maybe 20 years old, not really handsome, to be honest. So I thought maybe he has no girlfriend, so I asked him, hey, do you have a girlfriend? He said, no, I don't have. So what I expect, I asked, but would you like to have a really, really pretty girlfriend? Oh, yeah, yeah. That is, but what do we expect who will bring you this girl from the government, the state? <laughs> no, I don't think so. But what do we think? Who's responsible for getting this pretty girl from? Is that, ah, that's me. Yes, you got it. This is not only with this pretty girl from. This is with everything in the world. It's with money. It's with everything. Don't expect it from the government. If you explain it to people in an easy way, they understand so. Argentina, so sometimes you have to travel to these countries to understand. This is the reason, you know, I, tra I travel. I was there in Brazil, I was in Sweden, I was in Argentina, South Korea, Czech Republic, United States, Poland, and a lot of these countries, to the other countries, I will, I will go there in this uh, traffic. And sometimes you have to go to these countries to, to understand. Last thing, during the corona pandemic, there was a lot about conspiracy theories that usually they are associated with right-wing thinking. And in a way, it's correct, you have some, for me, crazy people like QAnon. I don't hope there's someone from who believes in QAnon here in this room. But um, for me, these are crazy people. But I had another hypothesis. My hypothesis was anti-capitalists believe in conspiracy theory. They are even conspiracy theories. How to prove it? So we have these 34 different statements, questions about capitalism. And then I, we added two that has nothing to do with capitalism, but to find out whether people are conspiracy theorists or not. People were agreed with these two statements. We call them conspiracy theories. This is typical. In reality, politicians don't decide anything. They are puppets controlled by powerful force in the background. And a lot of things in politics can only be properly understood if you know that there's a larger plan behind them, something that most people, however, do not know. And then we, we want to find out whether pro or anti-capitalists believe more in conspiracy theory. 
And here, if you look at this graph, the difference between the countries that was involved with the other graphics is not important. Important here is the difference between the left dark bar and the right bright bar. The left dark bar, these are the anti-capitalists, and the others are the pro-capitalists. And you see, here is the uh, uh, coefficient for believing in conspiracy theories. And in almost every country, it's higher, much higher, for anti-capitalists than for pro-capitalists. Look here, the difference. In almost every, there was only one country, small country, Albania, two million people, and there it was different, I don't know why. But there's one exception, this is also important. United States, also for the United States, it's true, there are more anti-capitalists who believe in conspiracy theory than pro-capitalists, but the difference is not really big. It's only 2.8 against 2.3. If you compare it here with Germany, for example, 1.2 against 0.5, much bigger difference in Moscow. That means you have a lot of people Maybe some Trump supporters or this who, the same time they believe in conspiracy theory, uh, and they, the capitalists put this. So it's it's only for the United States that the difference is not really big there. So thank you. This was about my book, and um, I wrote it for people like you. I would expect that most of you are more pro-capitalist than anti-capitalist, and. Um, some people ask me whether I hope to convince anti-capitalists with this book. And people ask me in the interviews, and I know I don't think so. And then they, then they ask me, why do you write a book if you believe you can't convince them? I, I, I said, I'm sure they will not buy it. They will not read it. They prefer to buy the new book from Bernie Sanders. Why it is okay we act about capitalism? They prefer to buy new books from Thomas Piketty and other anti-capitalists. I see sometimes when I post it on Twitter or Facebook, and then there are some left-leaning people with their comments: "This is totally nonsense. Book is bullshit, and it's all wrong." And I answer only with one question: Always, have you read the book? No, I wouldn't read it. Never a book like this. I wouldn't. I wouldn't read it. So, and so I wrote the book for people who are pro-capitalism to give you all the facts, all the arguments that you need for every discussion with anti-capitalists. Whether you discuss about poverty, monopolies, inequality, climate change, whatever, you will find about capitalism is the reason for wars, for fascism. There are 10 different chapters with where we refute all these arguments. We have all the facts. There was a review in Germany, and the, um, the author of the review he wrote, Seidemann uh, B, is fanatic of facts. And this is true. I'm fanatic of facts. Um, on the one hand, the book is based in science. You know, I'm two PhDs, one in history, one in sociology, and the book is with 900 footnotes. Uh, the bibliography is with 360 scientific books and papers. But it's written the same easy way 
as I'm talking, already without out the German accent, sure, because it's translated <laughs> by a native speaker, of course. So, but everyone can understand, uh, uh, USA Today can understand my, my books, sure, because I think it's uh, possible to, to explain even naturally complicated things in, in an easy way. So I hope um, you will read the book and I, I hope you will also share this film. I'm proud because the film that you saw, uh, we got an award at Anthem Freedom Fest last year in Las Vegas for Best Short Movie and I will submit my next film about Poland, hopefully to get the next uh, award for this. So this is a little bit my mission today to defend capitalism because I think the problem is not the anti-capitalists. Oh, no, the problem is that there are not enough people to defend capitalism, especially, for example, entrepreneurs who should defend capitalism, who should understand. But most of them don't do it. So I have money to do this research. I told you it's, it costs a lot of money. I, I did another research before about Envy. This is another book, The Rich in Public Opinion, the first book in the world about prejudice and stereotypes against rich people. Cato Institute published this book. I can recommend you, The Rich in Public Opinion. And I did a survey also for this book. And if you took all the surveys together, it cost me like more than 700,000 Dallas was also for me a lot of money, but I think there should be some wealthy people, entrepreneurs who support such research, but they don't do it. I have to pay it from my own pocket to 100% because I found, I found no one to, to support it, so this research. So, but, okay, this is what I like. This is my, my mission to go to write these books, to do my research, and now, when I travel to all these countries, my next book, I told you, I'm, I'm looking now for a publisher to publish it. Uh, this is the book, The Rise of the Dragon and the White Evil, How Nations Escape Poverty, the book about Poland and Vietnam. And then the book after this next year will be Liberty Road Trip about, it will be the book about, um, about this travel to the thirty countries, and maybe the, the last thing I, I, I can recommend you mentioned it. Uh, I wrote another. Uh, I wrote a lot of other books, but maybe two I should uh, mention here. The one book is uh, the Power of Capitalism. And I I compare things that you can compare, like North South Korea, East West Germany, Venezuela, and Chile or China at Mao's time, China Africa. Socialists, they compare a book with reality. This is what they do. Or their utopia with reality. I think this is not fair what they do. This is their trick. They have some tricks. One trick is not to compare reality with reality like Chile and Venezuela, but to compare the utopia with reality. And of course, utopia is always better than the reality, but I think it's not fair. It would be like the same, I don't know. You are, are you married? I am. You're married? Yes, maybe. I, I, I've been uh, 
this last year, but finally uh, I, I, I was here and tomorrow I would go to, to a new city there, meet a lot of journalists, interesting people, and even uh, I'm proud uh, Monday, Monday evening, uh, Steve Forbes invited me for dinner. He had here this great quote, I'm very proud. One of the most important books in decades defending capitalists, Adam Smith would have been impressed and proud by Steve Forbes. So I'm proud about his quote, uh, proud to, to meet him that Monday evening in New York City. It was good to be here. Thank you, and if you like, if you have time, uh, we can also have some question or discussion. But first, thank you. Economic Freedom and the Environmental Performance Index. This is not by me, it's by Yale University. They have this Environmental Performance Index. By the way, you can get it free on the internet. If you Google it, EPI, Environmental Performance Index, it's a rating of all countries about the environmental standards. How clean is the water, for example, uh, or how clean is the air and uh, a lot of other criteria. This is the one index, environmental performance index. The other one is the index of economic freedom. They have 12 different criteria for economic freedom. It's like taxes, labor market freedom, business freedom, monetary freedom, and uh, 12 different criteria. And what I did here to compare these two different indices, the environmental performance index and the Index of Economic Freedom, and the result was that these are the most economically free countries. I mentioned countries like Switzerland, Taiwan, uh, countries like or Singapore, and these are the most repressed countries like some African countries or North Korea, Cuba, or Venezuela. These are the countries in the middle. And you see the, the more economically free countries have the better score in the environmental performance. So this is not something that I did. What I did is only to compare both of these indexes. But you should, you should get it on the internet. Both are free. It's, it's uh, very interesting. This index of economic freedom is 500 pages. You can download it. And the other one is like 300 pages. Well, would you States are not more capitalist than European countries. The contrary is true. 
if you look at the index of economic freedom, you see the United States is now ranked 25. 25. Before the United States, better than the United States, more capitalists than the United States, are 16 European countries. For example, Sweden is number 10, Denmark is number 11. In Germany, and we are not economically free countries, and even Germany now has better ranking than the United States. So this is what people in Europe think. They think the United States is pure capitalism, and, and, but it's, I, I, I think you know that it's wrong. It's, 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 if you say Sweden is socialist, so it's, uh, these are some maybe stereotypes that were true 50 or 60 or 70 years ago or so. Uh, this is the group here, the mostly free countries. These are countries like Europe, like Europe but the uh, United States. But the United States has to pay attention. If they lose only two points in the score, the next index, they come in this, they will come this category next time, United States. But now all these European countries that you mentioned, United States, are this category, and there are these repressed countries. Yes? Yes, very good question. Let's go back to this graphic. We see here, for example, as I mentioned, Poland and Czech Republic, very pro capitalist I think it's not a surprise because they had very good experience with their transition from socialism to capitalism. But of course, there are other examples. For example, Russia. Uh, I don't think that it's capitalism what we have in Russia. It's a kleptocracy uh, that there are some people who steal everything from, from the people they call. But of course, people think it's capitalism in Russia. If this would be capitalist Russia, I would be here. I'm anti capitalist number one if this would be capitalist Russia. I don't think it's capitalist. And of course, there are some former socialist countries. Uh, Montenegro, what was part of Yugoslavia, or here Albania, or was there also Albania, or um, yes, or Bosnia, what was already also part of Yugoslavia. Uh, I think I understand why, because the transition was not successful here. These are the same elites. If you look in Albania, these are the same families that that wrote in communist times, they, they call themselves maybe pro-free market, but it's not a free market economy there. It's some, the same families that rule there, and I was there, for example, in Bosnia, and they told me, it's formally these are private companies, but 75% depend on getting this um, uh, from, 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 the, from, the, from the state, so, so the state has a very strong position. So you have countries with a very successful transition, 
with new elites like Poland and Czech Republic, and you have, unfortunately, some countries like Russia and so, with, and some that are in the middle, like here, Bulgaria, Romania. It's not so good as it was in Poland. It's, it's, so it's, it's possible to explain. What is harder to explain here in East Germany, you know, if you look deeper in the data for East and West Germany, people in East Germany are more anti-capitalist than people in West Germany. And you should think, they should know better. They have this experience with uh, socialism. But it's a kind of nostalgia, and it's kind of you know, anti-West Germany resentment. They think, oh, we are uh, only second-class people, and, uh, and uh, like a fairy complex or something like this. So that people in East Germany, there, there are a lot of anti-capitalists in, in, in East Germany today, more than I think it's, it's better today. You, you saw it in the film. Uh, you had to wait between 12 and a half and 70 years to get the worst car in the world. And only 60% had a telephone. And 26% had to share their toilet with other people. Uh, today, everyone has a telephone. People don't have to wait for a car and all this. And the environment is much better in East Germany. So people should understand that. And of course, there are some people who understand. But I think this is a special thing. It uh, has something to do with the, the feed inferior to West Germany, and we have our own identity, and they will steal us our experience, our history, and, and whatever. But uh, good question, by the way. I described only the difference now. To explain it, you have big much deeper, and I have a cooperation with one of the leading economic institutes. I gave them for free all my data from our research, and in the next years, I will, together with them, try to explain. And I travel to this country, this helps me a little bit to understand, but then I will do more research to explain all, all this data. Hopefully, someone else, of course, it would be great to have it every maybe two or three years the same to see, uh, but I will not be the one because it's too expensive for me. So I hope hopefully there will be someone who understands that it's important and who will, will uh, pay, for, uh, pay for this. Other question? Or, yes? I just want to exonerate Ruth from what I'm going to tell you an anecdote. Yes. I hope you will steal. Okay. Okay. Uh, when Clemenceau was the Prime Minister of France, the time approached conservative, one of his aides burst into the room and said, Monsieur Prime Minister, I have horrible news. Your son has joined the Communist Party. Clemenceau said, No. My son is 20-something years old. If he had not joined the Communist Party, I would have disowned him. If he's still a Communist Party member when he turns 30, I shall disown him then. Yes, I know this. I, I, I know this. It's a saying that uh, who's not socialist when he's uh, 20 has no heart, and who's still when he's uh, older has no brain. 
I don't believe so. I, I, I know some very smart people who were never socialists in their whole life. But for me, it's, the story is true. I was, uh, I was uh, even Maoist when I was, I was very early interested in politics. With eight years, I wrote my first letter to the later chancellor of uh, Germany with some uh, graphics and so on. I, I even started very early, and when I was 13 years old, I founded my Maoist group at my school, and I had my own newspaper, what was called Red Banner, and uh, I was, uh, I read all these writings from, even the, all three volumes of The Capital from Karl Marx, and all from Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, I knew all this when I was there in this age later, the change in earth, of course there are, there are some people, and I think it's good to, to know and to understand uh, what, uh, what they are saying, those, those Marxists. Yes, well, all I'm saying is that there's Hayek uh, wrote that the, uh, one of the advantages of, of the left is their utopianism. Yes. And what he called for in this particular essay was a liberal, meaning small L liberal, uh, free market utopianism. I thought about it, and of course, it helped, in a way, it would help to have this, but, you know. I'm an honest person, and to tell people something about paradise on earth, I don't believe in any utopia, even not in a libertarian or capitalist utopia. But of course, it, it would make it easier in a way, but less honest. But in a way, of course, we should learn from socialists. We should learn from their, not from their content, but from their PR, from their marketing. Because they're much better than we are. They have this, uh, they have this crazy theory, and that fails time and again. But they were successful in positioning socialists as human and capitalists in Europe. We know it's the other way around. So they have to be. I think they are cheaters in public relation marketing, and I think this is a bad thing for a lot of pro-capitalist libertarian, they are not good in marketing and PR. And you know, I speak about facts, but why did I make this movie? Because there are three things how you can explain it. First, theory. That is what libertarians speak mostly about. I have here a higher quote that another thesis that Friedman and this price theory. It's hard to convince young people with these theories. The next one, what I do with facts, history, stories, a little bit easier. But the best is, of course, emotions. Emotions, yes, sir. I, I was some weeks ago in a field in Greece, and there was a big demonstration from one, some thousands of protesters on the street. And I, I was there by, on the balcony of my hotel with my girlfriend that we watched, and half the time, they were singing songs, and I didn't understand because I don't know their language, but they were very emotional and very, for the heart, yes, warm, the heart. And what I said to my girls, look, we have all good facts, but they have, they have their songs and their emotions, and we should learn something from them. From, from them. So this is, 
And if you want to understand me, what I am on the one hand, I'm a scholar, I'm a scientist, but when I was an entrepreneur, I founded one of the most successful population agencies in Germany. We were number one for the real estate sector. So I'm kind of combination between scholar on the one hand, the public relation, marketing man on the other hand. I think it's both important. You have to bring it both together. This was the reason why you know, some authors, they write their book, and when it's written, they say, oh, this is done. No, for me now, it's starting. I, I have to go there and speak about it. Yes, we have another thing. When did you leave uh, socialist thinking? It was, of course, not from one day to the other. It's not you wake up or one day reading Karl Marx, next day with this I love capitalism. It's a development, but it was like 10 years. It took like 10 years. It started like with 30 years, really, and then in the beginning of 20 is a change that it has different reasons. But one reason was. Uh, I wrote my first dissertation about Hitler. I was the first one ever all over the world to read all speeches from Hitler, all essays, his two books, of course, and a lot of other things to analyze them and find out about his social and economic thoughts. And I found out that this Marxist theory about fascism that Hitler was like a puppet in the hands of capitalists and so it's, it's totally wrong, it's totally nonsense. I saw there that Hitler was much more anti-capitalist and socialist than most people think. Uh, by the way, last year there was a new edition of this uh, document. Even when I wrote this dissertation, I was a little bit more left-leaning. Not so extreme, not Maoist, but I was more left-leaning when I wrote it. But even I had a new edition today, I, I, I didn't have to change things, and now it's published in the United States as Hitler's National Socialism, because um, when I wrote it, I don't want to judge about it, but to find out what he really thought and what made National Socialism so attractive to people. I understood that this was the same things that were attractive with communism, with socialism, and so this was one reason, so when I started to to do my research there when I studied history and politics. But it's always changing. I, I, it was not one point, you think this way, and then you think the other way. Even sometimes it's this way, when people were very much left-leaning intellectuals, even when they go more to the right, they remain being anti-capitalist. Maybe there are then more rights in questions of nation or uh, migration or family, but still with capitalists because if the intellect, if the religion of intellectuals had capitalism. The, I have one chapter in my book, in the other book, not in this book, The Power of Capitalism. This is my favorite chapter. The, the chapter is why intellectuals don't like capitalism. And I was very proud because the first review about this other book, The Power of Capitalism, was written by Madison Perry, who was the founder of Adam Smith Institute in London. And he knew Hayek in person, he's more than eight years ago. He knew Maggie Thatcher, all these people. And he wrote in this review 
that I contributed rather highly for this question. I was very proud about this. And uh, this is about, I could speak here, not now, but more than our large lectures don't like capitalists. But to make it, because this is the problem. The source of anti capitalists is not the workers' movement. Even Lenin said it. It's not the workers. It's, Lenin said it's intelligentsia, and that this highly gemeinde decree, the intellectuals, they are the source of anti capitalists. It is their religion. <coughs> their, their, they call it the political religion. This is anti capitalism. And there are a lot of reasons, but one thing is maybe when you have academic background, like I have from my family background, then you learn very early. Uh, the most important thing is the more books you read. The, 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 you should read a lot of books. The more books you read, the higher should be your position. Later, teacher tell you the same at school and professor. Then you come to real life. And then you see, maybe my school neighbor was bad at school. Or maybe he only finished high school or so, something like this. He earns now more, much more money than I do. He has maybe a bigger house, bigger car, what's worse, a prettier wife. Then he thinks, oh, something is wrong with capitalism. It's not fair because I read more books. I have here my one or two PhDs. I'm a professor. I should have had bigger house, a bigger car, a prettier wife. Why? He has it. Yes, he, he has only high school and nothing else. And this is misunderstanding. They don't understand that this academic knowledge and academic learning, what, what we call um, explicit learning, is only one way to learn. There, there are other ways to learn that we call in the psychology implicit learning. These are much more important in a way for entrepreneurs, for example, that is academic learning. So there are other reasons. Okay, so thanks again. It was great to be here. I hope to come back next time. And please help me to give it, don't give it to your left-wing friends. They, they won't read it. It can happen in some cases, but give it, give this book to your, to people who think similar to you, to support, to to provide them with all the, all the facts, so that that they can win every discovery. I saw you have some books there. If you, if someone wants to to have to sign it, of course, I'm happy to to do this. And then I think I will go to the hotel because I have been in the hotel to after this. Long flight and all this what happens. They need to relax a little bit because tomorrow I have to go up very early in the morning to go to New York City. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you all so much for joining us. Um, if you are interested in attending any of our other upcoming events, uh, making a gift to IWE or applying to one of our graduate programs, please visit us at IWE.edu. Thank you.